You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. On today's podcast, we're pleased to have Randy White. He's the executive director of the Center for Community Transformation, and Dr. White founded the Fresno Institute for Urban Leadership. He's authored numerous books and articles on urban transformation, including Encountering God in the City and the Work of Our Hands. For almost 20 years, he and his wife, Tina, have lived and worked in the poorest neighborhoods of their city. Throughout their dedication to civic and nonprofit efforts, they've pursued justice and shalom for children and families. Today's discussion will focus on Dr. White's personal journey, how it's led to positive change in his community, and how personal transformation can lead to community transformation. I'd like to welcome Randy White to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I've been so thrilled as I've been thinking about and preparing for this this conversation. You just have such a unique background and and really unique. If you look at the wake of your life, I've met so many different people from the Fresno area or people that are interested in community transformation that have just like, oh, you've got to talk with Randy. You've got to you've got to talk with him about some of the models that he uses and. Um, some of the work he's done, and you're you're a professor and a practitioner, which is a rare combo. So I just thought maybe we could just start. Tell us a little bit about your story. What's brought you to this point in your life and in your passion in your life? Uh, I'm happy to, and thanks so much for having me on. I started in in campus ministry. I was with InterVarsity for a number of years, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and and sort of got my ministry legs doing work with young emerging leaders who were trying to figure out their faith, figure out this world and uh, what part their faith played in it and very traditional stuff on campus. But after about 10 years of that, I realized I was running on empty and I took a sabbatical in Oxford, England uh, with my family, moved there for a year. That's, that's back in the day when sabbaticals were really sabbaticals. And so I spent a year in Oxford. And while I was there, we we were living in International Student Center. And we met another couple also on sabbatical, the Duncans. But they were doing squatter settlement ministry in a Manila slum. And you know what happens when you first meet another couple? They were completely burnt out, completely worn out and just trying to recover. But you share photo albums back in the day when you actually had photo albums. We showed them our family, you know, pictures of our children surrounded by grandparents at Christmas, latest electronic toys, the well-edged and trimmed world of suburbia, you know, all of that. Their pictures were their house, which was a cardboard box in a slum in the middle of a squatter settlement that went on for miles, you know, corrugated roof, uh, slum dog millionaire kind of image, open sewage running down the middle of the street, dirt street dirt floor. There are three very blue-eyed blonde children playing in that slum with with an empty box and adoring Filipino adopted grandparents kind of surrounding them full of love. They were doing work sanitation projects. They were doing church planting. They were doing literacy projects and microenterprise. And I just looked at them and said, I just, I've never met anybody like you. You must be amazing people. And the Michael Duncan was from New Zealand, and I can remember his response was, nah, Randy, we just found out where Jesus lived, and we moved in with him. Mm. And those words got under my skin and stayed with me the whole year. I could not get rid of those words. 
So when we came back to the States, I decided that kind of the standard approach to campus ministry wasn't going to work anymore. And mm. for me, I decided I needed to get my students out of their safe, insulated, well-ordered environments mm. and into the heart of the city. And so we began experimenting in urban ministry in the hardest uh, hit neighborhood of our city called the Lowell neighborhood, highest crime, highest poverty neighborhood of our city. We partnered with local agencies there and became involved in, in urban ministry as a family. My two sons were seven and 11 at the time, and it was a remarkable experience. And then two years later, the Lord began to seriously call us to that neighborhood. So we sold our suburban home, bought a house in the heart of that old neighborhood, and we chronicled that story in a, in a book we wrote called Journey to the Center of the City. Mm. It was the most upending kind of experience of our life. Remarkable what God did to use that in our own transformation. And then, of course, to give us an up-close view of the kind of transformation that's necessary. And, of course, we had to unlearn a lot of things, stereotypes about the poor and the reasons for their poverty. And we began to understand the nature of systems, how mm. that um, affects poverty in poor neighborhoods. And, you know, where things were abstract at one point, now they had faces attached to them. So domestic violence is no longer a, a subject that's just a subject. It's, it's Sharon who calls us at three in the morning because her husband just got out of jail and he's breaking out all 30 windows in the house. Mm. Uh, and the kids are frozen in fear when I get there. Or it was Stephanie, who's a woman having to sell her body, and she's been shot in our front yard and came bleeding to our door. Mm. It's no longer prostitution, it's Stephanie. So these are, and a hundred other stories, you know, that came from our almost 25 years in that neighborhood that have informed our understanding of what it is that communities need and the neglect, the systemic neglect that cities have played and the forces of redlining, for example, to apportion whole sections of the city that don't get investment or the way city services get pulled back, decreasing value or the influence of absentee and slum landlords that affect housing options for those who are poor and the conditions that they live in. Just Betty, a woman who told us she couldn't get the heat turned on in her house unless she slept with her landlord. Mm -hmm. Just story after story that helped us begin to understand the level of transformation that would be necessary for you know, the gospel to demonstrate its relevance and for people's lives actually to be changed more than just the symptoms you know, being dealt with, band-aids being put on. So we relocated, um, we began to learn these lessons from the inside, and then we began to create institutions in the neighborhood that could work with those issues. And I founded something called the Fresno Institute for Urban Leadership. Mm. That led to me being national coordinator for urban projects for InterVarsity. After almost 30 years with InterVarsity, I um, accepted a call from Ray Bakke, who's an urban missiologist and theologian who's just passed away this last year, but mm -hmm. world-renowned and traveled with him around the world doing this kind of work in cities all over the world, from Manila to uh, Bangkok to Jordan to 
Guatemala and Mexico and Jamaica and China and literally all over, working with leaders, working on transformational issues in their cities. Mm. Uh, from there, I'm giving you a nutshell, George. So from there, a um, the global economic downturn, uh, they thought they were going to close. Thankfully, they didn't. But Fresno Pacific University asked if I would come and help them start a center. So we started the Center for Community Transformation 10 years ago. We just had our 10th anniversary. And that's been all about equipping and training God's people to embrace their city, um, providing training in Christ-centered civic engagement. And I won't describe everything exactly to you, but suffice it to say, we do micro-enterprise training, helping people who are getting out of prison learn how to start their own business, or just people with a dream need to provide an economic solution for their families because we live in the area with one of the highest rates of post-incarceration and the second highest rate of concentrated poverty of any large city in the United States. Wow. So I feel like it's incumbent upon us to provide solutions in that area. We've helped more than 50 churches start social enterprises that are hiring people with barriers to employment. Wow. We've trained 150 financial literacy um, facilitators through Faith and Finances, the national program. And so the, they're leading um, financial literacy courses that are designed for extreme poverty neighborhoods. And they're doing them in housing authority complexes and church neighborhoods, et cetera. That's wow. one thing. Then we started the Certificado, which is a, a way for um, pastors who are Spanish speaking, who don't have the benefit of higher education to get trained in community transformation. And we've just graduated our 130th uh, leader through a year long program. And that sort of thing. So Tina and I have been married 43 years, two sons, my two sons, their families, they have um, a total of six kids. So we have six grandkids. And last year we moved from the Lowell neighborhood, just six minutes east to a similar neighborhood. Um, but it's the neighborhood where my, both of my sons live. And so we literally live right next door to one son and his two children and three blocks from another son and his four children and their families. And it's just been the greatest blessing of our life. And so now we're leaning into that neighborhood and learning about it and trying to employ some of what we've learned and, and know, but doing it in, in that company. So that's about as short a nutshell as I can present my, my story. Um, hope that answers some questions. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. I think spiritual formation, personal spiritual formation has been pretty popularized, um, I'd say, uh, especially recently. And a lot of your work is is city transformation. And that obviously there's a there's an interaction there. The Garden City, our church, one of the theme verses that we use is Jeremiah 29. Yeah. Seek the flourishing of the city to which I've sent you. For if this, that city flourishes, you too will flourish. Could you just speak to that dynamic between personal transformation and city transformation? Like, why is personal formation not enough? Or how, or how do you see them interacting? It's really an important question. There was a pr professor out of Fuller, Bobby Clinton, who talked about ministry growing out of being. And that really is the starting point in so many ways that we really are a well our lives are wells, and if the well runs dry, then there is nothing to offer. We can go on mouthing, 
you know, platitudes, but people see right through that. And there is a lack of integrity in that process if there's really no substance there. It's why we can't lead double lives because innately it, it affects everything. So that authentic well that springs up forms the basis for all that we have to offer. And it is naturally replenishing. So when we're feeding that and depleting it and feeding it and depleting it, that's a healthy system. It's the sponge that never squeezes out that rots and smells. So ministry grows out of being. And that comes from, I think, our sense of calling. I mean, I have great respect for the reformers, for Luther and for Calvin. Martin Luther, you know, he said, we're called invocatio, which means like if you're a, you're a Christian and a plumber, be a Christian plumber. You know, have an ethic that comes from your your faith and be visibly that way. And that's good. That speaks to something that we that needs to happen. Calvin said, you know, we're called convocatio. We're called to basically use our profession, no matter what it is, for the sake of the kingdom. And that's good, too. Uh, I think that provides some insight. But I really like Mother Teresa's definition of calling. She says, nah, the work isn't the calling. We are called to belong to Jesus. And then everything else we do out of that love, if we belong to Jesus, every part of us belongs to Jesus, then even if I get cut to pieces, every piece belongs to him. I love that because to me, that speaks to the heart of community transformation, that we need vocational kind of virtuosity. We need people of every stripe doing everything in every sector of the society. And I know we'll probably want to talk a little bit about that, but the starting point is, do you belong to Jesus and do you cultivate that sense of belonging? And so I've really done that for me every day in the morning. That's the very first thing I do and spend time in scripture, spend time kind of a Lectio Divina, um, being mindful about the scriptures I'm listening to, um, entering into prayer at the end of every day, because I've been involved in the arts my whole life and I was raised in a gallery. I, I sit at the edge of my bed. I have a little old Chinese brush I hold in my hand and I offer it to God. I say, God, I've done what I can today to paint in your kingdom but my colors are imperfect and my, my technique is imperfect. Would you, during the night, repair what I've done and make it even more beautiful, the picture that, that, that you're painting, the grand story? And I offer that to him, and then I relinquish the day. And then the next day is, you know, we begin again. Um, Almighty and everlasting Father, thank you for bringing us safely to the beginning of this new day. Keep us from falling into sin or running into danger. Order us in all our doings and guide us always to do what is right in your eyes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just from the Book of Common Prayer. So you, you, you collect these tools that help you keep your reservoir replenished. You know, whether it's from the Reformers or Mother Teresa or Lectio Divina or St. Benedict or, you know, some of the greats. Uh, and you, you find really what works with kind of how you're wired, you know, so it really helps to know your Enneagram, for example, or it really helps to know your, you know, Myers-Briggs and all of that kind of stuff, just to know how you're wired 
and to feed that. Then you can have something to offer to your community. And it's not just what you offer, but it's what the community perceives from you about your motives and about what your center is, what your core is, because they've got a lot of other people coming in. They've got activists that want to utilize their people power. They want, they've got politicians coming in for their vote. They've got people trying to market to them and people, even in the poorest neighborhoods, they have their antenna up for all that is false and consents an authentic center, somebody who's, who belongs to God. And so I would say that personal transformation is, is absolutely central to community transformation. It's the authentic center out of which a lot of other things grow. Man, I just love that image. Um, the, we talk about reservoirs and rivers, like a healthy reservoir requires healthy rivers to be flowing. So th that it, that it, it's not just holding it in. Uh, and then powerful rivers require a, a really healthy reservoir. So yeah, I just yeah. really resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. Randy, one of the things I hear, and I'm again, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, but I just hear this idea of moving into the neighborhood. It makes me think of the, the theological term incarnation. And I also think of this word shalom. Mm -hmm. Those two words seem to, I don't know, have some real, like to be really foundational to what you do. Could you maybe just talk about that a little? Yeah, shalom is huge for us. Of course, you know, that verse you quoted from Jeremiah, seek the shalom, seek the peace of the city. And of course, that's the word shalom in Hebrew. And, you know, shalom is an amazing concept because we have no single English equivalent for that word. It means five, at least five different kinds of things. I mean, it, it means peace. It means well-being. It means security. It means abundance. It means reconciliation even. So how do you wrap all that up in a single word? Uh, so when he's saying seek the, the, the well-being of a community, it's, it's a comprehensive well-being. And Perry Yoder, who's a Mennonite scholar, says, in, in its essence, shalom means making things the way they ought to be. Pretty simple, right? It's the combination of righteousness and justice. And I think here's that relationship between personal transformation and community transformation, because internal righteousness leads to just activities and just relationships. And so righteousness and justice. But he says it's making things the way they ought to be in people, for people, and between people. And the way he arrives at that is he's a linguist. He looked at every use of the word shalom in the scriptures. And he found that every use of the word shalom falls into one of three categories. Either it's shalom, making things the way they ought to be in people, which is that we ought to be morally upright. We ought to be people of the truth, not people of the lie. And that we should have a moral center. Making things the way they ought to be for people means in, in those settings in the scriptures where it's summarized by four, he says it's making sure that they have enough to eat, that they have safety and security, that they have abundance, that they have shelter. And so every time 
the use of the word happens in, in the scriptures that either means in people's lives or for people's lives, but he says there's a third. And that's when it's used to describe making things the way they ought to be between people. And this has everything to do with peace between friends, peace between nations. Uh, it's that reconciliation. So I find his work really helpful. And that describes a lot of what we do in community transformation. When we're concerned about people coming to know Christ, that vertical relationship, then making sure that the things that are exploiting them are addressed and dealt with, making sure that they have access to the things that they're going to need to flourish. And then, of course, addressing, you know, issues between gangs, for example, is an issue of reconciliation, issues between social classes, the haves and the haves not, the issue of reconciliation, political parties, issue of reconciliation. So I find Perry's, Perry Yoder's work really helpful pragmatically, not just theologically. And he was a, he was a Mennonite uh, missionary. Mennonite scholar, exactly. Nicholas Waltersdorf. I mean, he just uses the word flourishing, flourishing in our relationship with God, our relationship with others, uh, our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our environment. Yeah. So Ray Bakke, when I served with him, I can hear echoes of his words, you know, um, he felt like it, the, the missing piece was a place-based understanding of shalom. So he would often say, we have a theology of grace as Christians, but we, we, we need a stronger theology of place. And that, that's based on the knowledge when you look at the scriptures that place matters. And if shalom is going to be embodied, it's going to be embodied in a place. And of course, his great love was, was the city. So that means you look at how prominent is the city in the Bible. I mean, there are 119 cities and over a thousand passages in the Old Testament. Whole books of the Bible are kind of hung structurally on the presence of a city. There are books of the Bible you can't even imagine being in existence without the city of Jerusalem or the city of Jericho, or that's kind of the skeleton that the story is hung on, right? You've got place influencing people so deeply in the scriptures and in history that, that they're, they're known by their place. I mean, think about the, you know, uh, Simon of Cyrene, for example, Saul of Tarsus, or Mary of Bethany, Jesus of Nazareth, right? They're all hyphenated by name. It was one of Baki's great insights. And it's so often because place has profoundly defined or influenced people. And that went on into history. You've got Clement of Alexandria, you've got Augustine of Hippo, you've got Mother Teresa of Calcutta, etc. So we associate people by place. But even more than that, in the scriptures themselves, you've got Paul in Athens. It's really fascinating. In chapter 16 and 17, he's kind of hanging out in Athens waiting for his colleagues, but he's been on this amazing urban tour. While he's there, he goes on this very intentional tour in the city that covers the synagogue, it covers the agora or the marketplace, and it covers the, the academy, basically, the Areopagus. Think about those sectors of the city. 
And what's he doing when he's in those? He's making observations, cultural observations, literary even observations, getting to know that culture, because the message he has has to be embodied in a place. And that's why so many messages don't work in the gospel today, because we, we, we tend to go with one size fits all. We don't think about context and we don't um, help the message have touch points in the, in the culture and the context. And so I look at Acts 16 and just think, wow, there's this incredible experience of place while he's doing theology. Um, and then he lets the city affect him. He was deeply moved by what he saw there, especially the idols. And I think we need to let ourselves be moved by place, just like Paul was. So I think shalom has to be embodied. And if we're going to pursue the way things ought to be for people and between people and in people, it's going to be in their neighborhoods, is that as they walk to school. I mean, my kids learned that walking to the local school, which was rough at times. And they learned those things that were disturbing the shalom of the community and all the pressures on the lives of the kids. My, my son, Jameson, was threatened by a gang and it's become one of the deepest lessons of his life into the the kids he now works with. He's a director of Youth for Christ here in Fresno Madera area, and he works with kids that come from the exact same kind of neighborhoods, and he understands those much more deeply than ever before. It was hard at the time, but he looks back at that now, and it's the most amazing insight. Or my son, Joe, who runs a, a neighborhood church that does community development in the neighborhood, and the way he intrinsically understands the forces that are at play in the lives of the kids of the neighborhood is straight from his experience growing up in that neighborhood. So God has really used that. But the message of Shalom gets embodied in, in place. And that's been a real key for us. How do you see the, the church interacting with the, some of these sectors in the city, in the culture? I know you and I think HSPs have done some work on this. Like, could you just share a mental model with us? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, so there are traditional ways uh, that the church has related to the city and with different sectors of society. So, you know, you have kind of the, the church against the city posture. Um, and this is, there are sectors of the American church that see the city as evil. Their role is to defend against it, to kind of protect against it, against its influences on its youth, et cetera to insulate themselves from the city as being kind of the cesspool of evil. <laughs> and I, I certainly understand where that comes from, but it is ironic that we should say to the light, it's too dark here. We should take the light out and move. And historically that's very much what many churches, especially white churches have done is to move out of places that they saw becoming very different than what they were used to. And so the church against the city has been a traditional posture. There's, there's another posture that's sort of the church to the city. And this is building on the work of Robert Linthicum in his book, City of God, City of Satan. And that's where the church cares that the city seems to be perishing and it still insulates itself from it. But every once in a while, they'll lob a little gospel bomb into the city, right? They'll, they'll do a service project or, or they'll do an evangelistic outreach on Easter morning uh, or, or something like that. 
And that shows that there is some heart and conscience for the city, but not enough to do anything more than occasional forays into serving or, or helping or witnessing. And so it's really the church with the city model that values real partnership with others in the city, even people who aren't of faith, that values civic engagement, that actually sees assets in the city that could be built upon. They're good and beautiful things. Ray Baki used to talk about when you go into a city, you always should have two things on your mind, signs of need and signs of hope. And it's so easy to see the signs of need, you know, the neglected yard or the graffiti or the X, Y, Z, but looking to see the signs of hope, that takes a little bit more discipline. So a church with the city says, actually, a sign of hope is, is the grandmother who lives on that corner in that neglected neighborhood, who we found out cooks for about 10 kids in the neighborhood because she knows their families are unstable. Mm. She is an incredible sign of hope. Or this teacher, we heard, arrives at school 30 minutes early and goes up and down the desks of her classroom and prays for every child in her room and then stays afterwards and puts a special additional homework help thing on for kids that are struggling, looking for the signs of hope. A church with the city thinks about their own giftings and assets inside the congregation, not just those who not know how to do Bible studies, but those who know how to call city hall and actually get an answer or the, the person in your congregation that knows how to write a legal letter to a landlord, you know, to get them to do something that the law mandates that they be doing anyway, or how to address this zoning law that was unfair in one part of the neighborhood. There are people in our congregations that have these, amazing gifts that we never tap because we, because they're not ushering and they're not singing in the choir and they're not providing the children's program. So learning to utilize those assets and then learning to identify the assets that are in the neighborhood itself, that's being the church with the city. And so that's for me, an important beginning point that we don't choose the negative postures toward the city, but we choose, choose this, we are partners. Um, another way to see the city is, uh, and you, you referenced my work with H. Spees, uh, our book, Out of Nazareth, uh, Christ-Centered Civic Engagement in Unlikely Places. What we're finding is that God's people and institutions inside the sectors can kind of discover and utilize their influence. And so think about the sectors of society that are, are out there. Um, you got public sector, you got private sector, you have nonprofit sector. Public sector institutions are, you know, law enforcement, city government, public education. Private sector institutions would be things like media, business, etc. Nonprofit sector, you'd have churches, all other religions, nonprofit agencies, community benefit organizations, etc. And if you put those in a donut, the donut hole is the community sector. It's the neighborhood, basically. So what if God's people, which are gathered in neighborhoods at churches, also realize that they are the church scattered into all those institutions, and they use their influence in those institutions 
for, for God's kingdom work in the community. So we are both the church gathered and the church scattered. One example of that uh, in, in Fresno, a number of years ago, the chief of uh, police was a Christian and he noticed that they kept getting high calls for service from a key set of apartment complexes in the city. And in those apartment complexes, calls for service would be for drug dealing, for gang banging, and for prostitution. And what would happen if they go in, they chase the drug dealers out and the gangbangers out, and then next month another set would move in and the problem would continue. And so the chief of police, in speaking with some of us in the community that were engaged in communities and were trying to get churches engaged, said, look, what if we did a partnership thing here? What if what if we went to the apartment owner comp- complex owner and we said, hey, we're going to we're going to chase the drug dealer out. You a victim. We'll make sure that they are out. But instead of renting that apartment, what if you set it aside and didn't rent it? And instead, what if we got the local church in the neighborhood and the school closest to the neighborhood to donate materials and volunteers? We turn it into a reading center and the police will use it as a dressing station. And it was a big thing to ask the apartment owners. And one apartment owner was a Christian. And so they gave it a try. And they found after several months of, of doing this, so that the school would donate books and computers, church would donate volunteers, the police would come by and be a presence at a dressing station. They discovered that the calls for service in that apartment complex dropped by 76%. Wow. It's amazing. And so they began to replicate that and eventually got to about 13 apartment complexes around the city. Sounds like restored shalom. Exactly. So you embody this, okay, the police chief used his influence, the principal of the school used theirs, the pastor of the church used theirs, the business owner used theirs, and there was synergy, and suddenly you had a solution to a huge issue of crime and violence in that little part of the city. Mm. It's a great example of what shalom can do when it embodies itself and embeds itself in the systems of the city. And so... For us, that's a really important way of relating to the sectors. And so the church, the church shouldn't just be sucking people out of the sectors is what I mean. We should be sending people into that, supporting people to, to utilize the influence for Shalom. Yeah. And I think there's so many people who are embedded in, in all of these institutions who, if they understood how comprehensive Shalom is, and if they, if they got support from pastors and, and faith leaders, that, oh, you, you're really doing the work of God in your sphere, then they would be the ones to come up with the ideas um, rather than it always having to be on the pastor um, or, or religious leaders to come up with the strategy uh, because they really know how the system works far better than many of us in ministry do. So the theological foundation is really important because then, you know, the, when the light bulb comes on over a leader's head to think, oh, my my work as a data analyst, you know, for Fresno PD could have an impact on the shalom of my city. Like, how should I be using it? It's, a, it's an important light bulb to come on. And this relates to the conversion that, that often has to happen in people's lives. So, I mean, we have personal conversions that happen. 
But then there are these other kinds of conversions yeah, that, that have to happen. It's not just, you know, the, upholding my own individual rights, but it's also community responsibilities as well. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think in your book, Out of Nazareth with uh, HBs, mm-hmm. I just think you you touch something that has become, it's always, it's always, if you have humans, individuals living in community, this is always going to be a tension between the individual and the community, individual, you know, rights and then community responsibility. And uh, some people might lean a little bit more their perspective one way or the other. But in the last few years, this has been an incredible tension and you guys really named it and I think have a really helpful model. Could you, could you talk about that? Yeah, I think what, what Dr. Spees does is he, he hearkens back to Alexis de Tocqueville and, and Robert Bella, Habits of the Heart. Um, so, so the essential premise of our society is built to live in that tension between individual rights and community responsibilities. Like we, we all do have individual rights, but we also have a responsibility to the greater good. But the observation is in the last 30 years, we've, we've been overbalanced toward the individual rights and some of the basic infrastructures that have held our democracy together, such as, you know, community groups or institutions or neighborhood associations or citizens clusters, et cetera, they've been seriously diminished. And we're seeing that fragmentation today, but it's sort of on steroids now. People still see connection, but they, they, they're doing it by tribe. They're doing it by affiliation rather than for the health of the community. So what I find really helpful here is the work of another colleague of mine in leadership foundations named Stefan de Beer. He, he leads the Pretoria in South Africa Leadership Foundation. And he, he does something really creative with Micah 6.8. You know, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, oh, human, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what de Beer does is he takes those in reverse. So walking humbly. He says, what kind of conversion does this require? Well, walking humbly before your God requires a personal conversion. It's the realization of the soul's need for God, right? We all, we all get that. People who are raised in more evangelical tradition, that's kind of the, that's the bread and butter right there, right? Personal conversion. But loving mercy, De Beer says, this requires an interpersonal conversion. In other words, we really do need to be in our souls converted to other people. Like, okay, my life is going to be about your well-being and what's right and making sure that you have full access to, to your own personal conversion, but also to the things that are destroying shalom in your life. And then what about the doing justly? He says, well, that requires a public political conversion. Mm. And he doesn't mean a political conversion to one party. He means just that, a conversion to the fact that our faith has public in, in implications to it. Mm. So the commitment that a humble person and a merciful person will make, well, they realize they have to influence a society to be more just. So wow. it's this conversion to the, the political square, the public square, to making your, your faith have relevance there. There was a time in Fresno when People of faith were in no way engaged in the public square. And for the longest time, we weren't even invited in. That has changed in the last 30 years. In fact, I chair the mayor's faith-based partnership cabinet, which is faith traditions from all over the city, 
working with the mayor's office on community projects. Wow. So then De Beer goes on to ask, well, okay, well, if you have to have those conversions, what, what theology would inform each of those postures of walking humbly and loving mercy and doing justly? He says, well, the theology you would need to walk humbly is just a theology of servanthood. That that's who we are. We're called to be servant leaders. Hmm. The conversion or the theology that would inform walking mercifully is you would need a theology of community. Mm-hmm. In other words, your theology is more from, for just than your own beliefs. It's It has implications for the community. And how much do you think your faith addresses community issues? Well, there's actually quite a lot in scripture about that. And so he would say, yeah, it requires a more robust theology of community. And then finally, he would say, to walk justly, you need a public theology. In other words, one that makes sense in the public square. So not just the sense that you should be connected and serve the public square, but actually there's good theological reason to do that. And so you're looking at characters like Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon or Esther uh, in Persia and the influence they had at the right time based on what they knew about God and what God's subjectives were in the world. So I think those two things, the, what kind of conversion do you need and what kind of theology would inform your approaches are, are huge. And then he just ends really practically by saying, like, what relational practice informs these approaches? Well, walking humbly just is discipleship. That's the relational practice. You follow Jesus. Mm. Loving mercy requires neighborliness. You know your neighbors. So my son, Joe, they 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 have this thing in their church. You know, you got to know your eight. Who are the two across from you? The ones on either side of you and the two behind you. And let's start there. Neighborliness. And then finally, doing justly requires, he uses the word citizenship. But what he means is engagement and involvement. Um, that you're not going to just sit back and let other people do the work. You're going to somehow be involved in, in, uh, in building the kingdom. So wow, those are, I mean, yeah, blows my mind when wow. I think of like that took some, right. I mean, and he is so engaged in his community in Pretoria and yeah. It's so simple, but powerful, but also challenging. I haven't heard it framed quite that way before I get to like the questions that just spark in my mind, what's been some of the impact for the the leader you're talking about oh in pretoria mm-hmm. oh my gosh oh he 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 had this incredible ministry to street kids that was born out of a tragedy of kids being housed in a warehouse and the police actually coming in and setting fire to the warehouse and kids died and so out of that grew this advocacy for street kids they do this uh, public engagement day where where they invite various agencies and organizations to come and demonstrate what they do in this clown parade Mm. where they make fun of the hypocrisies of the local political system and instead propose something more just. So they're actually offering uh, solutions. They've done housing for women coming out of trafficking. And you'll find people who live this kind of understanding of Micah 6-8 in all cities across the U.S., I'm part of a network called Leadership Foundations. It's remarkable that are doing the kind of work we're doing in Fresno all over. And it and it it just 
is so contextually oriented that it, it matters like what, what is your city struggling with? What are the issues that your city struggles with? And then you fashion responses that, that come out of that. And so here in Fresno, I, I mentioned, you know, the mayor's faith-based partnership cabinet. Well, out of that has grown a system called Sacred Streets, where we've now trained more than 100 churches to relate to homeless people in their geography and to know how the system works, how to get the right help to people who are struggling uh, that are unhoused, as well as uh, know what the other options are. And so that's been exciting to see that. We've swung hammers and repaired porches on the west side where, you know, roofs are falling in and people were kind of left on their own without any help from the city. Uh, churches were able to come in and fill the gaps, programs that the city couldn't cover, that kind of thing. So housing, homelessness. We did the very first anti-human trafficking data survey of 26 agencies and got them to start sharing data all up and down Central California because Fresno is on the human trafficking highway from Oakland to Fresno to Las mm. Vegas. And so it was, we just felt like, okay, this is not being done. They need to share information. They can make better decisions about hiring, um, what kind of languages they need, the staff, what the portals are. So that, I guess my point is from city to city, based on, you know, what the contextualized needs are, the people of God, when they're committed to this kind of public engagement and have a, th a theology for it and understand shalom at the center of it, then they are, you're able to be creative and work with the people's gifts that are there and stuff just grows. I don't feel like I have to orchestrate it all, you know, God God lets it grow. This ecosystem, it's like grace grows when you cultivate it. Exactly right. Exactly right. Wow. Uh, this is just so intellectually stimulating for maybe some of our listeners. I think it's inspiring and it's also doable. I just love, I, I really appreciate how you practice things and put them into doable terminology and doable practices. You know, sometimes there's still vestiges of fear or maybe theology that's that I've run into where people have grown up in a culture or maybe they hold these beliefs that like, hey, that some of this stuff just sounds social gospel. We need to do like the real gospel work of just personal transformation. We, I just don't, it just seems so odd to think about having to get out in the public square. You know, how do you, how do you address concerns that Christians might have about that? Yeah. Well, I've been around long enough to see some Christians just equate their faith with being nice and um, doing nice things for other people. And I would say that it's gutless. It's, it actually doesn't do anything transformational because all significant transformation happens from that personal decision at the heart of who we are answering that soul's cry for God. And so absolutely the only thing that really works and lasts and is sustainable starts with personal transformation. And the thing is, if you don't start there, you start somewhere else that can't sustain itself and you run out of goodwill after a while because you just bang your head against the wall. And I would never denigrate the discipline of social work like some Christians do. You know, oh, that's just social work. As if social work is a bad thing. I would never do that. But what the gospel provides that social work can't, can't do is to heal that heart issue and then reconnect people. And of course, that's, that's at the heart of 
social work. We, our systems, relational systems that have broken down. So on the one hand, I would say personal transformation and response to the gospel, helping people come to know Christ is absolutely essential. But then if you stay there, what you're left with is a gutless gospel. Os Guinness in his famous book, The Gravedigger File, said, then you're left with a, a faith that is personally engaging, but socially irrelevant. Personally or privately engaging, but socially irrelevant. And I, I think you can't look at the scriptures, our call to the poor, our call to serve others, our call to do the right thing in the public square, you can't look at the scriptures and think that your personal faith should have no social implication. So you really need both. If you have the, the personal gospel without the social gospel, it's like you've got the soul without the body. And if you've got the social gospel without the personal gospel, you've got the body without the soul. And famous missiologist said, the problem with the, the first one is a ghost. The soul without the body is a ghost. problem with the second one, the body without the soul, it's a corpse. So we need both. And this transformational work compels you once you understand the, the essence of the gospel in our lives, our relationship with Jesus. It compels you to love and serve others. So that, that's what I would say. It's both. Oh, so helpful. I just think this conversation has been really helpful for our listeners. If someone's interested to go deeper on this, what what might be some resources you would you would recommend? Well, I would certainly look to the Christian Community Development Association, ccda.org. Uh, Dr. John Perkins founded that movement about 30 years ago. Um, remarkable in all of its resources. Um, their conference is happening here pretty soon, a national conference. Um, Dr. John Perkins, of course, has written many books on this subject. And H. Spees, who's co-author with me on this latest book, actually ghost wrote some of his, his books or was um, you know, part of that process. So I would look to that organization. I would look to leadershipfoundations.org, another network of national and international uh, organizations that are trying to do Christ-centered uh, civic transformation. And they see the city as playground, not as battleground. And in fact, they're they're compiling a theology of city as playground here pretty soon. I'm excited to contribute to that. Uh, so that's another organization. But I think people can begin by finding out who in their city is trying not only to do the work of relief, but also do the work of development. What's the um, difference? The Chalmers Center is a great resource. Anybody who's not read the book, um, When Helping Hurts, should read that book. And that will introduce them to the Chalmers kind of approach to relief, development, re relief, rehabilitation, and development are lines along a spectrum. The church has been historically really good at relief, you know, food, food pantries, clothing closets, um, emergency relief. And that's good. The problem is, we kind of have grooved that slot and we've not known how to move beyond it. So we keep applying relief kinds of solutions to situations that really require more rehabilitation 
in a person's life or more development in a person's life. So the person who comes back to your local agency that can't get their heat turned back on because they didn't pay their PG&E bill. And so you might help them once pay their PG&E bill, but next month they're coming back again. You've applied relief, but we never got to that. Okay, what's what was going wrong there that we could address? And then what are the larger issues? Like, do you need help getting certified in something that would get you a little higher income? So there's that development part. So we've been good at the relief, not so good at the rehabilitation or the or development. So Chalmers helps churches know how to better work with people on that spectrum. And so the Chalmers.org, I think, would be another resource for people uh, to go to uh, who want to learn more about that, that process. But at minimum, find somebody in your city who's doing something more about the in the de- rehabilitation or development spectrum. And that'll just be an incredible encouragement that you can actually solve problems, not just put band-aids on them. Mm, signs of hope. Yep, exactly right. Last question for you. Yeah. Um, in a more and more post-Christian culture, a more and more pluralistic culture, highly tribalized and politicized right now, coming out of this pandemic, what would you love to see the church be known for? What would you love to see? Like if you were to wake up in five years, what would you love to see in cities and communities? The church being, um, what would you love to see? I'd like for people to respond uh, by saying, see how they love one another. I, I mean, I hearken back to, you know, 2000 years ago to the, the way the church was seen. They were addressing needs at great personal sacrifice, selling their own property, laying it at the apostles' feet. See how they love one another, not only in the sacrificial way they live, but also the way they apply their their other treasures, their skills and knowledge sets for, for the good of others. I guess I'd want them to not point to our stances for or against stuff or people, but point to actions that are motivated from love. And that's all summed up in see how they love one another. And the one another is just not people inside the church, but it's a, it's a characteristic of the community. I know that's a big ask right now. We're in a really rough place in a culture when we have burned so many bridges as the church and been so pure you know, in our doctrine and in our uh, lifestyle that there's no room for letting people be on their journey somehow. I guess the other thing I would want them to say is, the, oh, they're really pointed toward Jesus. Like, they might be blowing it. They might be just as messed up as other people are, but clearly they're trying to orient their life around Jesus, that there's a locus of their, their commitment. It's, they're not, the locus is not their lifestyle. Their locus is not their denomination their, or their preferences, but around the person of Jesus. I just hope we can re, recapture that. And that'd be my, my hope. And I, that's why integrating naming the name of Jesus and everything we do, you know, is just for us, like non-negotiable. We, we wake up thinking about Jesus every day. Randy, this has been a joy. Um, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for joining our podcast. Thanks for all the work you do. You've been listening to Comet Grace, a Garden City podcast. 
If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please email us at info at gardencitynw.com. If you want to support the podcast, please rate and review it or share it with your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to what Garden City is doing with this podcast, you can give at gardencitynw.com slash give. Thanks for listening. 